0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're continuing our summer sermon series in the Psalms, and tonight we've come to Psalm 58. And um, our New Testament reading tonight will be from Acts chapter 4. So we'll read that for first, Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that it would pierce our hearts tonight. Um, We pray that our hearts would be soft to listen, to believe, and to obey what you're about to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23. Peter and John have just been released. Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs, Your hands deal out violence on her. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Amen. You may be seated. Count of Monte Cristo, famous story by Alexandre Dumas about uh, a man who's who's falsely accused of conspiring to put Napoleon Bonaparte back in power, um, and after he's falsely accused, he is imprisoned for life in the very grim Chateau d'If um, island prison in the Mediterranean. Uh, off the coast near Marseille. And I think what most people remember these days about the story is probably the iconic scene from the movie version um, where the main character who's been locked in the same cell for six years before he escapes. Spoiler alert. um, He carves into the stone wall day after day by hand with another little rock deeper and deeper each time a single sentence which is God will give me justice. God will give me justice. Of course, it's not just in novels that we find people falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, uh, punished uh, undeservedly. The Bible, of course, is full of these stories, or many of them. You can think back to... Cain and Abel, very beginning. Think about Daniel in the lion's den. um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jeremiah being thrown in the cistern. You can think about uh, Joseph, first with his brothers, then with Potiphar's wife. And then, of course, there's David, all of these innocent sufferers, suffering unjustly at the hands of powerful people. Um, In fact, several psalms in a row here in this section of the Psalter, have been dealing with David's undeserved suffering, especially at the hands of Saul. Not just that, but especially Saul. Psalm 58 here specifically zeroes in on this issue of injustice. What do God's people do when we don't get justice, when we are treated unfairly, and when we experience tyranny and oppression from the very people who are supposed to protect us? We're supposed to represent God's justice in the world, and yet so often they do the opposite. So what is a man or woman of God supposed to do? How are we supposed to pray? What are we supposed to hope for and expect from God under these circumstances? And so as as we think about this, I want to look at this psalm in three parts tonight. The first one is going to be the problem of of injustice, verses 1 through 5. Second will be a prayer for intervention in verses 6 through 9. And then finally, the prospect of true justice in verses 10 and 11. So the problem of injustice, a prayer for intervention, and the prospect of true justice. So first is the problem of injustice. And David begins by asking this question, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? And uh, of course, that can be a little bit confusing when you first encounter it, because it sounds like David is somehow talking about many gods... The Bible teaches there's only one God, right? And The idols are are not even real. Um, The very short and simple answer is that occasionally the Hebrew word for God is used to refer to human rulers. Um, They're not actually divine. They're just very powerful people. A more well-known example of this is in Psalm 82, verse 6, where it says, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. It's princes, human princes who are being described using this kind of lofty term. Now, of course, sometimes um, human rulers, people in civil government, like to think of themselves like gods, try to act like gods, try to put themselves in God's place. It's really at the heart of all tyranny. In fact, that's precisely the problem that leads to tyranny, to oppression, to injustice of all kinds. Because at that point, someone in power is no longer ruling under God by his law, as his representative, as his agent in the world. Instead, they're trying to create their own law. They're trying to prop up their own power, right? elevate their own reputation, um, their own glory, and they're trying to do that at the expense of the people that they are supposed to be serving and they're supposed to be Protecting. So do you indeed decree what is right, you gods, you powerful rulers, in other words? And we could include, of course, King Saul himself in this group, right? This group of tyrants that David probably has in mind here. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Taking Saul as an example, Saul obviously had not judged David uprightly. He had slandered him. He had falsely accused him and then subsequent to that he had tried to take his life even though he was innocent. Clearly innocent. And so David answers his own question here. No, verse 2, no, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. They're doing the exact opposite of what their office is called to do called to protect the innocent. They're called to uh, be a terror to evildoers and to protect those who do right, and they've flipped that around, right? And this is so often what we find in real life, right? This is so often what we find in government. so often what we find among many powerful institutions of different kinds. We'll talk about that in a little while. Now, as we move on to verses 3 to 5, you can think about this. Everybody agrees that there's a lot of injustice in the world, right? there are a lot of bad people in power doing bad things. But what people don't broadly agree about is where that injustice comes from. What is its origin? And Psalm 58 here cuts straight to the point in verse 3, emphasizing this central truth, that the evil and injustice that we experience from people in power originates with the sin problem that infects the hearts of the people in power. You've heard the famous quotation that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now that's true as long as we understand it in the right way. Because hearing that, some people might think that it's power itself that is the problem. That power takes basically good people and transforms them into bad people. That is not true. If that's what you mean by power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, well, that's, that's, that's not accurate. That's not the way it works, and it's not consistent with the Bible's teaching. What the Bible is teaching us, here and in many other places, is that the evil is already there in every human heart. It's just that it's usually held back in various ways through, for example, the rule of law, through the fear of punishment, through our desire to please other people, to be accepted by other people. And what increasing power does is it gradually takes those restraints away, removes that fear, removes that reluctance, it gives that natural evil in our hearts freer reign so we don't have to be as afraid of exercising. It makes us less inhibited from acting on that natural selfishness that was there already because we're sinners. And that's why power corrupts. It's taking the restraints off of our sin. See, David doesn't say here, oh, those poor tyrants, poor Saul. He was really a pretty good person until he went and became king, and look what it did to him. That's, that's not what happened. No, he says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. It's a big difference. You know, I might think, well, that sounds really harsh. David's saying these, these people who are oppressing him have always been corrupt, even since they were little babies. And uh, a critic might go on and say, and so, David, I suppose uh, you're so high and mighty, you probably think that you were born squeaky clean, that you were some kind of super child, like savant of, of righteousness. When you were born, when you were a child, is that what you think? Well, no, that's not how David thinks of himself, is it? It's not the comparison he's trying to make. Because just a few pages before Psalm 58... Psalm 51, you remember what David says about himself in that chapter? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This David prayed, by the way, after he had just acted like a tyrant. After he had committed a grave series of injustices. Against Bathsheba, against Uriah. See, David was not unwilling to apply the same analysis to himself, to see that what we call that total depravity in his own heart, that original sin. Where does the evil come from? In those great power centers of life. Whether he's talking about those people out there, whether he's talking about himself, David sees it ultimately comes from the heart. It comes from that corruption that's there from birth in every human being. So we might veer off in the other direction at that point and say, well, see, David is really no different from Saul. Basically just the same. He's no different from any other tyrant, any other oppressive, power-hungry, might-makes-right kind of character that we meet splattered all over the pages of history. Not to mention all kinds of other powerful institutions in contemporary life. David's just the same. It's that kind of cynical reaction, right? But that's not true either. That would be falling into a different ditch. There is a great difference between David and Saul. So we go on to see what else characterizes these people who are wicked from birth. Verses 4 and 5 says, They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. It's picturing the snake that's kind of immune to being charmed by the snake charmer. And if you're the snake charmer, that's pretty bad news, right? Because it means you could get bitten and killed by a poisonous snake. Question is why is this snake not responding? Can you see? You could look kids. Why is this snake not responding to the snake charms? This is the snake is deaf. He Can't hear the flute, right? He can't hear it and so he's not being charmed. He won't listen. He won't listen. Now compare that. Psalm 40 Psalm 40, verse 6. Something David says about himself there is very striking. It's one of the more vivid word pictures in the psalms. The English translation that you see in the text simply says, Lord, you have given me an open ear. But if you look at the footnote, you can see that it literally means, ears you have dug for me. And that psalm, David's picturing that God has physically dug out the ear canals in his head so that David will be able to hear God's voice. So that he will be open to listening to what God is going to tell him. Now, how important that was for David. How important that was for him when he had acted like a tyrant, yes. And God's prophet came to him and he said, David, you are the man, look what you have done. What makes different David so different from Saul is that David listened. And David repented. He was devastated by his sin. He confessed it. He turned away from it. And you think about how different that is from Saul, who had a prophet talking to him through so much of his reign, Prophet Samuel. And did he listen to Samuel? No, he wouldn't listen. He would not turn and go a different direction. Samuel keeps trying to warn him. Saul just keeps going from bad to worse. He's like a deaf serpent who won't listen. So this is the situation that David's in. It's the kind of evil that David has to deal with. But what is David to do? Well, in verses 6 through 9, you get David's prayer in response to this injustice. This is a prayer for God's intervention. It's a prayer for the Lord to step in where David is powerless protect him and to give him the justice that human authority is denying to him. And this prayer, I'm just going to put it out there, this prayer is pretty violent. It is pretty intense. I want to acknowledge that from the outset. David is asking God to, to break these people's teeth in their mouths, asking him to, to tear out their fangs. Uh, that That would seem kind of horrifying to a lot of people. Think of doing that to a a real live lion. Um, Maybe because when we think of lions, we think of them typically as animals in captivity in a zoo, right? Um, And doing that would be very cruel (laughs) to a zoo animal. We we wouldn't think of doing that. But you've got to get yourself in a different mindset. Imagine yourself out in the wilderness in the ancient world where you're having to survive on the land and there are truly wild animals all around you and, and there's a lion on your tail who has your scent and he's trying to catch up with you, kill you, and eat you. That's the kind of lion that David has in mind. And if that was the case, then you would probably think a little differently about what would be too extreme of a response to that lion. Okay, now I want to do whatever it takes to keep this lion from eating me. In um, saying all that, I don't want to downplay the violence of this word picture either, though, because it is supposed to be shocking. It is supposed to, That is the poetic point here. Of this imagery, God is going to bring to bear overwhelming force that is going to break the power of these tyrants who are trying to harm his people. Because God cares that much about his people and protecting them from this great evil. David is praying here that their power would vanish, would evaporate. That what right now seems so imposing, so big, so impossibly strong. So solid and impregnable that all of a sudden it would become quite different. Let them vanish. Like the water that runs away. His arrows blunted. So that so instead of piercing and killing, they just bounce off like nerf darts. It's gonna bounce off. Because they they've they've been they've been blunted. You, know, you just imagine somebody taking aim at you with bow and arrow with or even with a gun, and blam, gun fires, and bloop just bounces off because it's been blunted its force has been taken away it can't hurt you because the lord has intervened He's, God has made that scary thing powerless to harm you that's what david's praying for verse 80 gets very imaginative let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime like you I guess it would be kind of gross to find a dead snail and you might be a little scared in the sense of Ew, I don't want to touch that. But you're not going to be afraid of it as anything that can actually hurt you, right? It's, what could be more powerless to hurt you than a dead snail? It's not, it's not going to be able to do anything to you no matter how gross it is. The next one's not silly. It's very dire. Let them be like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. It's a very uncomfortable image, even disturbing. But again, that's really the point. David is trying to come up here, he's racking his imagination for the ultimate image of powerlessness. Whatever is the polar opposite of this violent power that these people currently are projecting, and this is what he comes up with, is the opposite of that. Uh, verse 9, um, the imagery here is a little bit unclear in the Hebrew. even says that in the footnote. Um, but to get the, the point, the forces of verse, you, all you really need is the last line where it says that God's going to sweep them away. He's going to sweep them away. It's like God is able to just take the chessboard and voom, all the pieces go clattering onto the floor. All those intricate games and stratagems of these high and mighty people have just been turned over, capsized by God's overwhelming sovereignty brought to bear for the protection of his people. Okay, so at the end of the psalm, David concludes with how people in general are going to uh, react, and righteous people in particular, but really people in general, mankind, when, when people see all of this take place, what are they going to see? What's going to be clear to them? And this is the final point here, the prospect of true justice. It says, first, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Uh, again, more very violent imagery. Um, and maybe some people uncomfortable think, is, is that really the way we're supposed to pray? Is that what we're supposed to really want? Are we supposed to desire to see our feet bathed in the blood of our enemies? And, and some people might take the tack of saying, well, that's, that's kind of an Old Testament way of looking at things. Um, I'm not sure we can really take that route because Revelation 19 later pictures Jesus himself at the second coming clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's the blood of his enemies can't kind of squirm out of the discomfort. Um, The point here is that there has been a total victory over a totally defeated foe. And this is simply the reality, if you can think about. We're so insulated from the brutality of warfare, even of modern warfare, much not to mention ancient warfare. We think of David as this warrior king who had won many battles and he had walked across the field of victory. And this is the image that is familiar to him is what a total victory over a totally defeated foe is like. This is what characterizes a victorious army. It's picturing, of course, God's total victory over his enemies. And the joy of the righteous knowing that God has won the victory. And that those wicked foes have been have had their power utterly taken away. Their ability to harm God's beloved ones is gone. It is vanished. It has run away, it has disappeared, the arrow's plunted, it's over. I would also hasten to add that, um, I, was, I was saying earlier, we, we can't um, kind of blunt the passage by saying, well, it's just the Old Testament. I would hasten to add to that, that there is a change, there is a change in salvation history from the Old to New Testament regarding the way in which God's people are to expect and to experience victory over our enemies at different times. Um, it's not. I'm not saying that there's no difference at all between David's time and our own. Um, David lived under the monarchy, a period in salvation history where, what did the expansion of God's kingdom look like? What did the victory of God's kingdom look like? Well, it took a very physical form, right? It took the form of territorial expansion, conquest, military battles. That was the form in that period of salvation history, the coming of God's kingdom. That's what the coming of God's kingdom looked like. It was David's military victories. Well, since the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is still expanding. It is still winning great victories. It is coming, though, and expanding in a different way, a different mode. It's taking place, of course, through the proclamation of the word. Right? Um, this is something uh, theologian Carlton Wynn has helped me with quite a bit. Um, uh, so, going on to this point, the, the church today, of course, does not carry the power of the sword the way that David did. Carry the power of the keys. Um, we're living in a time right now between the first and the second comings of Christ. We are living in a time of judgment delayed. Judgment delayed. A period of time where in God's providence, the gospel is being proclaimed in the world. The nations are being invited, they are being called to experience God's salvation while they still can. Before the final judgment does come at Christ's return. So we are living in an era, an age of grace and salvation in the plan of God. That is this present Time that we're living in in God's plan, which is different from the era, the age that David lived in, and it is also different from the age to come when Jesus comes back. And that is why, that is why Jesus tells us in His ministry, He tells us to pray for our enemies, and He never tells us, He never tells the church, he never tells Christian state to pray against our enemies. What we are to think of as foremost in our minds is we are to think of their repentance and salvation, pray for their repentance and their salvation, rather than their destruction. At the same time, though, having these psalms in the background as part of our Bibles, too, we are also to recognize with great joy and with satisfaction That if they do not repent, the Lord will deal with them in the end. That wicked people are not going to get away with anything. Because the Lord is a just judge. Because there is a God who judges on earth. And his final judgment may be delayed for a while. While as long as those doors of salvation remain open to the nations but that judgment is coming in the end when all of the wrongs will be made right and the judgment will fall and that is a matter of joy and hope and comfort for the people of God when we're faced with the great injustice in the world God's judgment on his enemies is part of his salvation for his people I'll say that again God's judgment on his enemies is part of his salvation of his people that's so much of what we've been learning from Habakkuk, right? In the morning sermons. And it's also a big uh, takeaway for us as New Testament Christians when we read an imprecatory psalm like this one. We're living in a time when the kingdom of God is being revealed on earth in a different mode than in David's time. But it is the same kingdom of God with the same king, Christ. And the same final outcome, his total victory, the total defeat of his enemies. And see, what David was, what David was in part, what David was falteringly and weakly as a king in his day, Christ is all of those things fully and perfectly and all powerfully today. And he is going to be completely victorious in his final victory when he returns. And that's very good news. For the people of God. Okay, so, question. How should we live now, then? Right now when we're experiencing, when we're actually experiencing the very grave injustices of life. And those can be big or small. Um, It's not just one kind of thing. You can experience injustice from your friends and from strangers, you can experience injustice from government. You can experience injustice from employers, big institutions of many different kinds. There's so many times where we simply feel so powerless. like There's just nothing we can do when powerful people are doing wicked things and just think, what is my recourse? What can I do? And the psalm helps us to answer those questions. And the first answer is this. The first thing is we are to trust. We are to trust that there is a God who judges on earth. We are to take comfort in that. We are to patiently wait for his judgment to be carried out. I mentioned at the beginning of, uh, several Old Testament examples of unjust suffering. Let's not forget the biggest example of unjust suffering of all, which is the Lord Jesus himself, right? Think of what Peter says, how when he was reviled, the Lord Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, the first word to trust. Second thing is we are to pray. We are to pray, I would add, for our enemies... You might be surprised to hear this. Or maybe you won't be. I don't know. I would not advise you to go home and think of enemies, think of people who have done bad things to you, and pray this psalm against them. I would not advise you to do that. That is not how this psalm is to be used for Christians today. And that might that might surprise you because maybe you would have thought, thought maybe, I think that's what, how I am supposed to use this psalm. I don't think that's the way that Christ would have us to use this psalm devotionally in the Christian life. No. During this Era This age of salvation, when we are to be seeking the conversion and the salvation of our enemies, praying for God to defeat them in the same way that he's defeated us, right? By subduing us to himself, bringing us into his kingdom of grace out of the domain of darkness. We'd be praying for the salvation of our enemies, praying for God to change their hearts and save them as to be foremost in our minds and hearts. Um, and if you're wondering if I'm right about this, well, here's one more argument for it. Um, Jesus prayed from various Old Testament passages on the cross. I don't recall him praying the imprecatory psalms from the cross. He didn't pray from this psalm. It's very striking that on the cross, Jesus did not pray for God to break the teeth out of the mouths of the people who crucified him. But what did he pray? He prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And I think that's very telling for us thinking about how we're to think of this psalm in our own Christian life. However, you might think, well, then should we pray this psalm at all? Absolutely, we should. This is a prayer for Christians, not just for Old Testament saints. And we are, in fact, going to sing it together at the end of the service. What are we doing when we sing it? We are to pray this psalm, especially in that corporate way, we can do it individually too, as an expression of our confidence in God's perfect justice that will be manifested in the end, even though for a time it may be delayed. We can pray in much the same spirit that the church in Acts prayed when we read earlier from Acts 4, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you keep working supernaturally on our behalf. That's what those people in Acts were praying. So we're to trust. We are to pray. And finally, we are to beware. We are to beware. So easy to picture ourselves exclusively as the victims, right? Exclusively on the receiving end of injustice. Every one of you is in a position where you have the opportunity to use your power, small as it may be, even if, even if it's just of an older sister over a little sister or brother, or an older brother over a little sibling. We're all in the position to use our size, our ability, our knowledge, our gifts for selfish, oppressive purposes, to put others down and elevate ourselves instead. We can do that in our families, we can do it in the church, we can do it in business, in government, Wherever. We must not be like these deaf adders, these deaf snakes who will not listen to the word of God. Will not soften our hearts. We need to have open ears and soft hearts to make sure we are using our power, our influence, our um, <clears throat> relationships, and and yet yeah, uh, that we're using those things wisely and humbly for the good of the people that um, we're interacting with, as servants of God, as servants of those other people, in the way that Christ demonstrates in his own kingship over us as he lays down his life for his sheep. I started by uh, quoting from the Count of Monte Cristo movie version. Uh, That's a very complicated story of revenge. The famous line is, God will give me justice, although a lot of the story is actually about the main character trying to get justice for himself, trying to take revenge. More like, I will give me justice a lot of his actions. Uh, But listen to how the book ends. At the very end of the book, the main character sends a letter to a friend where he describes himself um, as someone who, like Satan, thought himself for an instant equal to God. He's kind of regretting some of the things that he's done. But who now acknowledges, who now acknowledges with Christian humility that God alone possesses supreme power and infinite wisdom. Never forget, he says, That until the day when God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. An Interesting lesson uh, learned from a man who, who didn't spend his life in that way, but wound up in a place much more consistent with Psalm 58. So I want you to be encouraged as we close, people of God, that there is a God who judges on earth, and that God will give you justice. But also be encouraged when you long for justice, that God has not given you just justice. Because as we heard this morning, in the course of justice, none of us would see salvation of justice alone. God has treated us with mercy. God will give you justice. But always remember that that's in the context of the mercy, the grace, and the kind compassion He has shown to you in Jesus Christ, who took the justice of God upon Himself in your place. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for what we've heard from Your Word. Uh, Challenging psalm in many ways, but Lord, we thank You for its central message that is so clear, that there is a God who judges justly on earth. And so we entrust ourselves to You. Thank you that you have not treated us the way we deserve. But also trusting that in the end you will make all of the wrongs right. And so we thank you for this. We praise you. We look forward to that day when Christ will come again and bring all these things to fruition. We do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.